Well, it's good to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church and uh, looking forward to diving into God's word with you now. Uh, Terry is going to be reading our sermon text this morning out of Genesis chapter 1. So listen to God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we come before you this morning in awe and in wonder. God, you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. But also you dwell with the humble and the broken and the contrite. And so God, we pray that you would help us to recognize your greatness. God, we are desperate for your power and your presence. We're desperate for your grace. Help us now as we open up your word to see your greatness through this text of scripture today. And because we see it, God, I pray that you would change our thinking and living because of it. Father, this morning, we also wanna pray for New City Fellowship Church. God, we're grateful for that church and the faithfulness of their ministry and preaching the gospel in Manassas. God, would you bless them this morning as they gather? Give them hope and joy in Jesus today. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. You know, something that all of us do from an early age is ask questions about life. When you're a kid, most of those questions are why kinds of questions, like why is the sky blue, or why do we yawn, or why do I have to go to bed right now, or why do I have to eat my vegetables? As we get older, our questions become a little more complex, though I still don't really understand why we yawn. We just ask deeper questions about life. Questions are good because they help us to get information, to gain understanding about the world that we live in. And one big question that our world wrestles with, that our cultural culture wrestles with, is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Really, this is a question of identity. Who am I? I Why am I here? But this isn't just a philosophical question or a theoretical question. How you answer this has implications for your life and your living. Because this doesn't just have bearing on your personal identity, but also how you relate to God and to fellow humans. Now, our world and culture has answers to these questions of identity and humanity. But the world isn't where our understanding of self and humanity originate. Its origin is with God. Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series called Origins, Living Life in God's World. And the text that we're looking at, the scripture we're going to be spending time in is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The place where we see in God's word how God made us and intended for us to live. And what we began to see last Sunday and what we'll see throughout this series is that everything about us, everything about us and our world begins and ends with God. And who we are and what we're to do is all in light of that reality. 
Last week, Mark walked us through a whole chapter in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Today, we're going to zero in on three verses within that first chapter. And from that, we'll gain a more clear understanding and answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? And what are the implications for not only how we view ourselves, but how we view and relate to God and to fellow humans around us? Church, this text is one of the most impactful and foundational in all of the Bible. In a broken world with broken relationships at both a personal and societal level, these verses give us grounding and guidance for how God intends for us to live and move and have our being. Listen, the truth contained in these verses isn't just theological, it's practical. If we can grasp what's going on in this text, that we can see that it impacts every interaction you have with every single person that you come across. It frames those, it influences it. And as I was studying it and working on it this week, I kept thinking of more and more things to say, more and more things to talk about, because the implications for these three verses is so vast and so wide ranging. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours but we don't have hours right now. So today is just gonna be the tip of the iceberg. But I really believe if we can grasp this, if we can begin to grasp what God says to us here, it will radically impact how we view ourselves and view people around us. I love the truth that's in this text. It significantly challenged me in my life and I hope it'll do the same for you. So let's dive into Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and may God bless the preaching of his word. As we come to our text today, we're gonna dive back into this last movement of God's creation in these three verses. And as Mark mentioned last week, Genesis chapter one is written in a stylized way. It's a mix of both prose and poetry. And these three verses are a good example of that. They function in a creative flow. If you look at verses 26 and 28, they say very similar things. One is looking ahead to something and the other is looking kind of in the rear view mirror at something with verse 27 being kind of the poetic center point. So what do we see in these verses? Well, first we see a difference in how this part of creation is talked about. Everything else that God has said in the midst of his creation is let there be or let the, but here, verse 26, here he says, let us, let us. In that one little phrase, we have hints of the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Spirit coming together to do something. And what is it that they do? It says, let us make man. Now man here equals and encapsulates all of humanity. As we see in verse 27, this is both male and female. And we'll come back to that more later. It's important for us to understand. We'll come back to it more later because what we see initially here is a foundational truth. Let us make man in our image. This foundational truth of this text is right here. All people, men and women, are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's the beginning of the answer to what it means to be human. An understanding of, of who you are and why you're here. Now, as many of you know, we have four kids and we often hear, Amy and I often hear that, oh, well, this one looks more like Amy or this one looks more like you. Three out of our four have blue eyes because I do. They all have some shade of blonde hair because when I had hair and was younger, it was blonde. To be made in the image of God is about having a resemblance to God. 
or as the beginning of verse 26 says, after his likeness. So this is important for us to understand. Human beings aren't the same as God, but are similar to him. My kids aren't Amy or me, but they look like Amy and me. To be made in the image of God is to be similar in character, similar in attributes, similar in capacity. And it's what sets humanity apart from all of the rest of creation. See, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation because it's so different than everything else that God makes. One God in three persons brings an aspect of who they are into who we are. But any similarities that you and I have with God are in, in, in likeness, are likeness in kind, not in degree. For instance, humans have the ability to create, but none of us can create anything out of nothing. None of us can bring worlds into existence. We have the ability to know and to have knowledge, but none of us have exhaustive and full knowledge of all things, like God. Additionally, any similarities we have with God are all derivative, meaning that we have the capacity, the ability to create, but that's because God is the creator. We get that from him. All humans bear the same basic human traits that come from the one true God who made them. We are rational, we are spiritual, and we are relational. We're rational, we're spiritual, and we're relational. We can think and reason. We all have a soul. We can have meaningful relationship with God and with others. No other aspect or entity of creation has those three things. Being made in the image of God means that we are a reflection of God. We're a reflection of God, but we are not God. And that's critical for us to understand. It's something we'll come back to today and in the weeks ahead. But here's what I want us to get today. To bear the image of God, to be made in his image is to be human. And if you're human, then you bear the image of God. All people. Every human being. There's no qualification for this. There's no disqualification for this. There's no prerequisite except to be conceived. And when that happens, there the image of God is and there the image of God remains throughout the life of that person. Every man, every woman, every child, every ethnicity, every social class. See, the author is driving the point home through repetition in these three verses. All people, men and women, are made in the image of God because all people, men and women, come from the first man and first woman created, Adam and Eve. That means that being made in the image of God is the central truth about what it means to be human. If we're asking ourselves that question, if our neighbors are asking, our, asking us that question, here's the answer. It means to be made in the image of God, to reflect him, to be like him. This is the foundation and the starting place of who you are. But why does this really matter? I mean, what's so significant about the fact that all humans are made in God's image? Well, two things. Because all people are made in the image of God, all people have value. And because people are made in the image of God, all people have vocation. Let's talk about vocation first. Mark is going to dive into this more next week as we get into Genesis chapter 2. But I want to mention a few things this morning. Vocation is another word for work or, or what you do during the day. So all of us have something that we do during the day. Some of us get paid for that. Some of us don't. But whatever we're doing during the day, that's our vocation. 
And vocation isn't something that we came up with in order to occupy our time or, or in order to advance society or to make money. It's God-ordained and it's a part of being human, of being made in his image. And what we learn in these verses is that humans are given a charge, they're given a role precisely because they're made in the image of God. No other part of God's creation is given this kind of mandate or direction or vocation. And what is it that they're, the vocation that they're given? We see the answers, or answer in verse 26 and 28. God blesses them. He gives a commission to them to be fruitful and multiply, to exercise dominion over creation. This is what's often called the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. They're called to rule with God over creation. They'll serve with God, like God, but be under his rule and under his authority by his design. They're never meant, we're never meant to be lone rangers or self-sovereigns. In other words, as people who bear the image of God, our first parents are given the vocation to create culture, to permeate the earth, and create humans to populate the earth. And as they do these things, they reflect and represent God to the world. If you want to know why you're here, who you are, you're a human, created in the image of God. Why are you here? You're here to reflect and represent God to the world. In all of your living, your very existence and your daily living is meant to glorify God as you fill the earth as little reflections, little representatives of the character and nature of God. Not so you can point to yourself, not so you can say, look how great I am, but look how great our maker is. That's what God does in these beginning days, beginning of life, the beginning of humanity is give us this charge, this vocation. So because all people are made in the image of God, all people have vocation. But also, because all people are made in the image of God, all people have value. If all people are made in the image of God, then all people have value. But this isn't merited value, it's inherent value. What I mean by that is there's not a value you have to earn by something that you do or how you produce or what you look like. You have value simply because you're made in God's image. The other day, one of my kids came home with one of those little bracelets that like you get at different things that have like a saying on it or, or a team name or something like that. I think they got it at school or on the bus or something. It said, I am worthy. And they said, well, what, what does worthy mean? I said, well, worthy means something has worth or it has value. So this is saying that you are worthy, you have value, you're valued. So I asked, well, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's true? They said, yeah, 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 I guess so. I said, well, why? why? Why do you think that you're worthy? Why do you think that you're valued? And one of them said, well, because I'm smart. Fair enough. But isn't that the answer that our world often gives to why somebody has value or somebody has worth? something like that, you're worthy, you're valued as a human because of what you can do or what you look like or where you come from or what you have. But what this text is declaring to us, what it's declaring for us and over us is that you are worthy, you are valuable, not because of what you can do, not because of what you look like or what you have or where you come from. You are worthy and valuable because you are made in God's image, period. 
Listen, the truth of Genesis 1, 26 through 28 requires, it mandates, it demands that we as human beings, as one commentator says, take all human beings infinitely seriously. C.S. Lewis famously said, you've never met a mere mortal. No one you interact with is just a mere human being. They're inherently valuable because they're made in God's image which means that we should value them simply because of that, simply because God values them. In fact, I would argue that it should lead us to celebration. It should lead us to worship. That as we look out at the 7 billion people in our world today and look around and see all of them, that we should stand in awe of the beauty and purposefulness of God's creativity in and through humanity. It's all its richness in all its diversity, men and women, young and old, in the multiplicity of ethnicities and cultures and skin colors that all come together to form these beautiful differences that we have with one another. This is who we are made to be. This is what we're made to do. All image bearers all reflecting God in his glory, all with value and vocation, all a part of God's good design. But there's a problem. These first co-laborers of God, who he created and called, didn't want to remain like God and under his authority. They wanted to be God and throw off his authority. In Genesis chapter 3, which we'll look at in more detail in a few weeks, we, we see this rebellion come into play, what the Bible calls sin. And as it takes place, it causes a cas- cosmic fracture with far-reaching effects that you and I still feel and experience today. When sin entered into God's good creation through the disobedience of our first parents, of Adam and Eve, into the hearts of his people, it broke everything in our world. It broke our physical creation. It broke all relationships between God and between one another. So now what's true of every last person is not only that they're made in the image of God, but also they inherit the sin of Adam. And the sin of Adam, like a pervasive disease that courses its way through your body, it distorts the image of God in you. It causes you to have a twisted view of God, a twisted view of self, a twisted view of others and your place in this world. Jen Wilkin, in her book, In His Image, says, because of our sin, we are cracked vessels designed to display beauty, but leaking at every fissure. See, now when it comes to ourselves and others, it's like looking at a reflected image and a mirror, but a mirror that's been shattered and broken. It still reflects, refracts light. You can still see the, the makings of an image in it, but it's distorted and contorted. The problem is we often forget that. We forget that what we see is not the way it's supposed to be. We look at the broken mirror reflecting back this broken image and forget that it's broken. And man, our enemy loves that. The one who first tempted our first parents to disbelieve the goodness of God, to disobey the commands of God, he continues to come after us. He continues to perpetuate the distortion of those who are called to reflect and represent God in the world. So many different ways. A disregard for life, injustices based on skin color, abuse, neglect, every aspect of a broken relationship, the anger you have towards someone when you're tempted to slander or gossip about them, messed up ideas about beauty and physicality. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Our enemy is coming after you. He can't attack God, but he can come after those made in his image. 
Sin has marred the image of God in all of us. And what we need, all of us, is to have that image redeemed and restored so that we can be who God designed us to be and desires us to be. And that's exactly what God gives and exactly what God does. God brings restoration and redemption by sending a restorer and a redeemer. Listen to this text from Colossians chapter one, thinking about what you've heard over the last two weeks in this series. This is amazing. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, talking about Jesus, it says this. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image bearer. Hebrews chapter one says the radiant, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This world is for Jesus. It's to the praise and glory of his name. And Jesus, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Jesus holds the world together. Every aspect of it. There's no detail of your life or all of creation that's outside of his control and his sovereignty and his power. And then it says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not us, but him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Jesus, this perfect image bearer of God to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our rebellion, just like Adam and Eve, deserves death. When we throw off God's authority, when we live with this distorted image of God within us, it deserves punishment because we've rebelled against God. But Jesus comes taking our humanity. He didn't remain distant. He didn't phone it in. He didn't kind of just send a check to pay for our sin. He sent himself. He came. He took on flesh and blood and lived in this world and went to a cross to die for your rebellion and for your sin and for that jacked up image that you bear to restore it and redeem it. Jesus comes to set us free. He comes to redeem and restore the brokenness of our humanity and make us who God desires for us to be. And what happens when you place your faith in him, when you believe he is who he says he is, you receive forgiveness. You receive freedom from your sin and from your rebellion and you're given new life. The old is gone. A new creation has come. Later in Colossians, Paul says, in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says, you have put off this old self with its practices and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. See, sin has messed up the image of God in you. And when that, with that comes a loss to your humanity. But Jesus came to restore it as the perfect image of God, fulfilling all aspects of the call and the command to represent God to the world is one who is full of grace and truth and glory. Listen, in and through Jesus, you are able to be who you were meant to be. You're able to be fully human. So if you don't know him, if you're just checking out who Jesus is or what this whole church thing is or Christianity thing is, then come to him today. Find hope in him today. If you're looking for identity, if you're looking for purpose, if you're not sure who you are, place your faith in Christ today. And he'll show you what that looks like and what that means. And if you do know him, rejoice. 
because the image of God is being restored in you. So what do we do with all this? I mean, how does this actually impact our real life and our daily living? Well, man, there are so many things we could talk about. So many ways the truth of this text can be applied and impact us. So for our remaining time, I want to focus in on three big categories with a few specific points within those. Engaging self, engaging community, and engaging culture. Honestly, it was difficult to know what to mention right now. There's so many things that came to mind for me that I thought about as we, as we could think about how to apply this to our life. And so I'm going to talk about a few of them now, but I'm going to, I'm going to write some midweek musings. That's kind of the, uh, a place for our pastors to write different things about things that we're thinking about and how they apply to our church. Over the next few weeks, going to write some stuff to just kind of unpack this a bit more because I don't think you guys want to hang here for the next four or five hours. So let's start with engaging the self. This goes back to the question we asked at the beginning. What does it mean to be human? Who am I? Why, why am I here? Hannah Anderson in her book, Made for More, she says, we've tried to answer how identity manifests itself without first answering where identity comes from. We've tried to figure out where a man or woman should spend his or her life without first answering who he or she should be. She goes on to say, in order to know who you are, you must first know who he is. In other words, if you want to know yourself, if you want to find yourself, if you want to know why you're here and what it means to be human, look not to animals or to the environment or to your genetic makeup. Look not to achievement and abilities. Look to God. Look to him, the one in whose image you are purposefully and wonderfully made. See, often we wrap up our value and our identity and our ability to achieve and succeed. I know I can do this. Do people like me? Do they like what I'm saying, what I'm doing? My value, my identity can rise and fall with what others think about me or how I think I'm performing. But then I missed the whole point of what it means to be made in God's image. And man, our culture propagates that. It promotes this message. But what we see in this text, what we have to understand is that your ability to achieve, your ability to succeed, your ability to create is rooted in your value. It's rooted in your vocation as an image bearer. Hannah Anderson goes on to say, being made in the image of God means that your life, all of it is sacred because he has stamped his identity onto yours. Every single thing that you do, your work, your living, your sleeping, your eating, your relationships, all of it is sacred because you bear his image. This is important whether you struggle with a low view of self or a inflated view of self. Because the point is, it's God who defines self, who defines you. It means your identity is not self-generated or culture-generated. Stop listening to those things. It comes from God. Listen to him. Yes, you're, the image within you is distorted and damaged by your sin, but it's redeemed by Jesus. This has been so helpful for me at different points of doubt and struggle over the years. If I've received criticism or challenge or just difficulty in life and thinking, man, who am I? This text has helped me to come back and be like, I am an image bearer of God. God values me because of that. Listen, you matter not because of anything you have done or will do. You matter because God made you in his image. That is who you are. That's what you're now called to do is to represent and reflect him to the world around you. And because of Christ, you're now able to do that more fully until he returns 
or calls you home. The truth of this text also has implications on how we engage and treat others around us, both in community and in culture. See, when our eyes have been opened to see and believe that all people are made in the image of God, therefore all people have value and all people have vocation, it gives us an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity in a broken world to play a part in seeing the restoration of the image of God take place, not only at a personal level, but also at a relational and societal level, to continue to reflect and represent God in a redeemed way. Article 9 in our membership commitment. For members of this church, we've committed to one another to help each other follow Jesus. Article number 9 says this. We will uphold and celebrate and value the image of God in all people for all of life. Born and unborn. And human sexuality as defined by the scriptures, which are reflected and expressed in God's good design of male and female, singleness and marriage, and people from every tribe, language, and nation. So how does this play out when we think about engaging community? Well, so many things. It affects every relationship you have. It affects how you interact with your spouse or your kids or your roommate or your coworker or people around you. It affects all of those things. But again, I don't have time to get all that today. One thing I want to mention that's clear from this text that I think affects how we can engage one another and how we can think about engaging the world is it relates to both men and women being image bearers of God and therefore equal in value. Throughout history and even within the church, that hasn't always been the case though. Sometimes that's been downplayed or outright abused. Women have often been treated as second-class citizens in our country and in our churches. But the truth of this text does not support that at all. It doesn't elevate or prioritize men over women. No, instead it should lead us to celebrate the diversity of differences between men and women. In fact, I'd argue that the image of God is most fully realized when men and women come together. Now, certainly that takes place in the context of marriage, but that's not the only place. It happens in this room. It happens with this group of people. That as we see men and women come together under the banner of Jesus Christ, that we better reflect the glory of God, we better reflect the image of God as we come together in all of our differences as men and women to do that, as single and as married. We better image the, 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 we better display the image of God to the world when we function in healthy relationship with one another. See, the fullness of the restoration of the image of God is incomplete then, apart from being in community with one another. We need men and women in this church serving, using all of their gifts in order to be faithful to what God has called us to. It's because of the truth of this text, the church then is called and compelled to lead the way in treating men and treating women with equal value and respect in every area of life. This text also helps us as we consider engaging not only self and community, but also culture. Again, lots of points of application, lots of places we could seek to apply this around us. As we think about how do we engage with somebody who's poor or in need, that needs mercy, we think about things like human trafficking or sexual immorality or just the neighbors that we live around. It impacts all of those things. But for our time today, I just want to highlight two that are a particular burden for me. First, being made in the image of God begins in the womb. The little people growing and developing inside their moms are to be valued no differently than those outside of the womb. 
That means that taking the life of a child, no matter how small, is wrong and inconsistent with what we see in this text. So because of that, we as God's people and fellow image bearers should strive to stand up for the lives of the unborn, be, being a voice for the voiceless. And I'm grateful that this church has a long history of doing that. But this also means that we have to strive to care for the other image bearers who are involved in this, the ones considering abortion because of crisis, not necessarily because it's convenient, but because they often feel like it's the only option. As people who are made in the image of God, we should look at that young woman or man who is pregnant, who are considering an abortion and not just tell them not to, but ask some questions. What's going on? How did she get in this situation? What's she believing right now? What can I do to help her, help him? Is personal sin at play? Absolutely. But that's not all. And if we miss that, then we miss a lot. There are societal determinants that are also at play. Things like a lack of education or a lack of access to good health care or a lack of support or lack to, of financial resources. All of those things lead people who are in the midst of crisis pregnancy to look at their situation as hopeless. But if we're going to stand up for and celebrate all of life from beginning to end, then we need to also help that mother and father see that their situation isn't hopeless. Not just with our words, not just with writing checks, but with our actions and our lives. I'm thankful for the pro-life movement, but as followers of Jesus who believe that all people are made in the image of God, we just need to also work toward a whole life movement. And it's sad and ironic to me that sometimes some Christians will march and advocate and petition for abortion laws to be changed. But if a young woman actually keeps her baby and needs things like government assistance, or has a hard time providing for her family, those same voices don't seek to show mercy, but heap shame. Brothers and sisters, may it not be so with us. May we open up our lives and say, come, hang with us, be with us. We wanna walk with you in this. Statistically, one out of four American women will get an abortion. If that's you, and you have or are feeling shame, know that there's grace for you, that our God can bring healing and restoration and forgiveness. Let us walk with you in that and help you experience that redeeming and restoring grace. But church, abortion is not the only pro-image bearer issue in our culture. It's inconsistent with the truth of this text to say that we're pro-image bearer but be silent on the issues of racism in our culture and country as well. Listen to me, racism in all forms, whether that be prejudice or bias or policy, racism in all forms is an affront to God. God who created all people of all colors and all ethnicities in his image. So as people who understand this, as people who believe this to be true, that all people are made in God's image and therefore all people have inherent value, we must strive then to eradicate racism and racial injustice and bias at both the personal and societal level. 
that God's people must lead the way in advocating for equality of all people, regardless of their skin color or ethnicity, and, and oppose any who propagate racial injustice or bias, whether through rhetoric or rule of law. Unfortunately, that also has not always been the case for the church, whether through our silence or through our sin. And that's also wicked and wrong. Brothers and sisters, may, not be, may that not be the case for our church now or in the future. Listen, only when we see all people as created in the image of God do we have a reason for valuing all of life. Humanism doesn't have that. Atheism doesn't promote that. That's been huge for me to realize that. When I'm talking to my neighbor that also thinks racism is wrong, I have a reason for why I think it's wrong. It's Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. We have a foundation in God's word of why we care about all people and why we want to value all people. What this means then, brothers and sisters, is this is not a political issue. This is a gospel issue. It doesn't matter on what platform these things show up on. What matters is, is that a king and his kingdom call us to live a certain way and interact with people in a certain way, caring and valuing them. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to dwell among us as a Middle Eastern man in order to rescue and redeem all of humanity. And that same rescuing grace of Jesus, who saves you not because you deserve it, not because of who you are, but because of the lavish love of God, is the same transforming grace that now enables you to love all people and value all people for all of life. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, Let's advocate for valuing all lives for all of life from the womb to the tomb and especially stand up for those who don't have a voice or who are being marginalized or oppressed or abused because we know and believe that all people are made in the image of God. And our world and our culture tells you that to be human is about what you can achieve or what you can do or what you have or what you look like. But God says to be human is to be made in his image. Our sin distorted that, but Jesus redeems it. So now, may we together rejoice and celebrate the beautiful tapestry that is humanity because we know that one day, because of what Jesus has done for us, we will stand together before the throne of our gracious God in a place where there'll be no more crying and no more pain and no more disabilities and no more oppression and no more abortion and no more racism and no more injustice and no more sin and no more death. And we'll stand as a beautiful mosaic of people from every tribe and every language and every nation unified by grace. To that I say, amen. May it be so and come Lord Jesus.